Nice job, Ruth. Yeah, man, she, she does such a good job. She's just so sweet. Well, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, beginning to feel a lot like Christmas. I, I don't know if it's me or maybe I'm just getting old and scroogey or something, but I heard my first Christmas song uh, two days ago. No, it's too early. It's simply every year gets earlier, and by the time Christmas comes, you're so sick of the songs. It's like, turn it off. It should start at like maybe a week beforehand. That'd be good. Although, you know, well, I just undermined our whole thing there, didn't I? December. <laughs> I'm talking about strictly on the radio. You can sing it other times, but. All right. And, and, and no one's allowed to ask me when I'm going to lose the beard anymore. I've been asked that too, too many times. My, my ego is just going down the toilet. I know, I just. And I'm not, I'm not yeah, I, I, might, I might just keep that thing. All those beard. Should, okay, all in favor of me keeping the beard, raise your hand. All opposed, same sign. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Well, there's only, there's only one uh, opinion in this auditorium that counts, honey. It, it's, uh, it's up to you. <laughs> I don't know. I, I've, um, I, there's the, the next shooting of this. I, I'm doing this because I'm playing this homeless guy in this movie. Uh, a friend of mine wrote this script and it kind of worked its way up to the top and a Hollywood producer got it and uh, now it's being done. So I, so I have a little bit role in it and she's got some other teachers that have influenced her in it just for symbolic purposes. It's called The Chance of Rain. I can say that now. It got out in Variety Magazine. So we'll see what happens with this thing. It may go nowhere, but who knows? I could be the next Tom Cruise. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to keep this or not. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, so we're doing, we're in the, the series uh, called Relatively Speaking. And uh, it's going to go a little longer than we had planned uh, because we're adding a message here uh, that wasn't originally scheduled. And we're taking, taking a kingdom look on all of our relationships uh, in the family and outside the family. And so what we've seen over and over again throughout the series as we're trying to get a distinct kingdom perspective on all this stuff is that in the first century... First century Judaism, anyway. Uh, the father defined the family, and the father had total authority over the family, and everyone's ultimate allegiance uh, was to the father and the family. And the kids understood that their job, as long as the father is alive, is to live in a way that's going to bring honor to the father and to carry out the father's will, because the father has total authority. So they live to carry out the will of the father, and uh, then to expand the family of the father, father by getting married and having kids. Jesus, we've seen, takes that whole patriarchal paradigm and applies it to our relationship with God. And so when we submit to the Father uh, by putting our trust in Jesus Christ, he, he, he changes from being just a supreme being to us to now being our dad. There's an intimate relationship that's created there. He's Abba, which in Aramaic means uh, dad, daddy. So he becomes our dear dad. And we become the beloved children. He pours his life and his DNA into us by the power of his spirit, the power of that love we just sang about. And we become, in a very real sense, his children. And that makes us brothers and sisters of one another. Um, and so he's the father and we are the family. And the father has total authority over the family. And the father totally defines the family. So we're to get our, our sense of who we are, our identity, our sense of worth, and the our sense of being fully alive completely from our relationship with him. Not, not from the stuff that the culture says you should get your life from and your looks and your cars and your houses and all the other achievements or whatever. No, our whole sense of worth is to be found in him. He totally defines us. And we understand that our ultimate allegiance is to be to him. Allegiance without any competition. Nothing's to compete with this. 
And uh, as his kids, our job is to carry out the Father's will on earth as it is in heaven and to live in a way that brings honor to the Father and to the family and then to expand the family, uh, either by having kids or adopting kids, uh, but certainly through ministry and through evangelism, inviting others uh, into the kingdom to be birthed from above. That's the, that, that is the kingdom right there. And so we're looking, that's the framework that we're using as we're assessing all the kind of different relationships that we had, have. So last week we talked about marriage. And uh, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to get that message. Uh, and especially wives, you may want to get that message and share it with your husbands if they weren't here. Uh, it's a kingdom perspective on that whole kind of patriarchal uh, structure that operated in the, in the first century. I want to continue that message from last week today. And so the first part of this message, I want to talk about marriage. Uh, and then the second part, I want to talk about the ending of marriage. Uh, in fact, the first part will be on bad marriages, and the second part will be on what happens when bad marriages have come, come to an end. So this is entitled, When Marriages Go Bad. And that explains the cover of the uh, bulletin that you got this morning. So pray with me here for a moment. So Father, uh, we, you're, our Abba, you're our Abba Father, and we just pray, God, that we would be, as your children, open to your word and hearing your word, receiving your word, being transformed by your word. Pray, Lord, especially that you'll use this message to impact marriages. Those that are good, make them better. Uh, God, those that need healing, by the power of your love, will you bring healing to those marriages? Those marriages that are struggling, by the power of your love, will you just bring clarity and, and, uh, and a fortitude to work through the issues? God, marriages that are, that are here maybe need, need reigniting. Father, we pray that you'd use this message to reignite those marriages. And Father, we, 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 for marriages that maybe need saving, we pray that by the power of your love, you'd use this message to save those marriages. And God, for those folks who have been divorced and maybe are remarried, we pray that you'd use this message, uh, God, to uh, bring comfort to them and, uh, and, and liberation to them and clarity to them and insight to them. And for all of us, God, use this message to help us to frame our life and all the issues of life and all the relationships in our life in a un unique kingdom way. Be present here, we pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Talking about bad marriages. And then we're going to get into divorce and remarriage and what that is all about. And even if you're single uh, and or whatever situation in life you're in, uh, this message is, will, I think, it serves as a good example of how to frame things in a unique kingdom way. So, so stay tuned into this. I think you'll get a lot out of it. Um, this is going to be, uh, once again, as I said last week, this is continuing the message from last week, and it, it's a teaching message. Sometimes I'm more motivational, other times I'm more you know, giving a concept here. So this is one that you're going to, uh, especially in about 10 minutes, we're going to get kind of thick, kind of intense. I encourage you to put your thinking caps on, keep them on, and be, uh, be attending to this. So we noted a couple weeks ago that, the, that God's purpose for marriage is to first... Uh, have that one, that one flesh relationship of a husband and wife put on display in a unique way the love of the triune God. And God's purpose for marriage is about growing us, discipling us, transforming us, character development. And marriages do that. And God's purpose for marriage is for the couple to be used in a way that ex expands the father's family. They do ministry together. And they maybe have kids and maybe adopt kids, uh, but they, by doing ministry and through evangelism, Expand the family by bringing others into uh, the kingdom of God. That's God's purpose for marriage. Reflect his love, grow us, uh, expand the family. Notice, notice that happiness isn't in that list. 
we usually have a goal of happiness and getting married, but that's, that's not God. There's nothing in the Bible that suggests that, that marriage is there to make us happier, which means kingdom people, that bailing on a marriage because you're not happy is not an option. If our, if our calling is to seek to do Abba's will and, and he doesn't have happiness as one of the goals for marriage, then, then we're not allowed to bail on a marriage just because it doesn't make us happy, which is why most people bail on marriages. I'm not happy. I want to find somebody who will make me happier. That, for kingdom people, is just not an option. Or I've fallen out of love. Uh, you can fall out of romantic love, but folks, we're called to even love our enemies. <laughs> and so you don't fall out of that kind of love, not agape love. Uh, so that while the world bails on marriages because they're not happy in the kingdom, that's not an option. If you're in a difficult marriage, I, I, I challenge you to, out of, out of obedience to God, to honor your Abba Father, to stay in it and work on it. Stay in it and work on it. Uh, it doesn't honor God to stay in a marriage just because there's a rule that says you shouldn't get a divorce. It doesn't honor God to say, I'm, I'm in a miserable situation, but I'm so righteous, I'm not going to you know, get a divorce. It doesn't honor God if you're just staying in the marriage for the sake of staying in the marriage, but you're not doing anything about it. Wallowing in your misery, that doesn't honor God. It doesn't grow you. Uh, in fact, if anything, wallowing in misery and you're not working on it any longer, that, that, that maybe is going to erode you or make you bitter. No, the purpose for staying in marriage is not about a rule or technicality or anything like that. It's to give God an opportunity to work on you and to work on the marriage and to begin to move it in a direction where it can eventually become a God-honoring marriage, one that puts on display the beauty of, of his love. Uh, it doesn't happen overnight. And Lord knows it can be very, very difficult. But out of obedience to God and honoring Abba Father, we're called to stay in there and work on it, stay in the game. However bad it may be, if a brother and sister... Uh, in the family of God. Remember that you're a brother and sister in the family of God before you're a husband and wife. And if a, a brother and sister say, sit down and say, look, I, we, we took a vow before Abba Father, and, and so we've got to make this work. And if two people are committed to working on it, I don't care how bad it is, how hopeless it maybe seems, I can promise you that you can learn to love one another and you can learn, that marriage can grow in the direction of, of putting on display the beauty of God's love. And you can find happiness in the marriage. However miserable it is now, you can find happiness. Now, that's not the goal for a kingdom person. Uh, but that is a side effect. If you have a kingdom, if you have a kingdom marriage that is modeling God's love, you're going to find happiness. Not the goal, but it is a wonderful side effect. Now, maybe you're here listening to this and you're saying, now nah, it's easy for you to say, preacher, because you have no idea how miserable I am. No idea how bad this marriage is. You got a good marriage. What do you know about bad marriages? The truth is, I know a little bit about bad marriages. Uh, I, I think our, our, our marriage is wonderful now, Shelly and I. I. I thank God for it. But we, we, we've had struggles. 16 years ago, we had to um, just deal with an issue that, that for about six months, uh, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was really, really hard. Uh, it was miserable. Wouldn't you agree, honey? <laughs> it was pretty miserable. <laughs> um, and, you know, and the reason was we got married, and like a lot of married folks, we, you know, all of a sudden, a month into it or six months into it, you begin to feel like you married a person from a different universe. <laughs> you just, opposites attract, right? And in our, our, our case, 
that really is true. Opposites attract. And it's like, oh, how do you get on the inside of the other person's life when they're wired so completely different than you? I mean, I'm totally normal, but, but Shelly's a little bit, you know, strange there. So I, yeah. And so what happened is, is I, I, I think that we just kind of got freaked out and, and couldn't deal with that. So we found a way of doing marriage where we didn't, didn't address that. And then I was in grad school and we had kids. And so we created a lot of fullness. And you can, you know, get by in a marriage, you have a good marriage or at least an adequate marriage just by the fullness of having kids and having a life in common on that basis and, and not attending to the fact that you're in different universes and growing apart. And 16 years into our marriage, we've been married 32 years now, but 16 years into it, as the kids got a little bit older, we began to, you know, the, the vacuum between us became more and more apparent. And there came a point where we had to name the ugly elephant in the middle of the room. And when, you, when we said it out loud and named it, it was, it was scary. It seemed hopeless. Um, yeah, it, we, we were on the precipice there. In fact, the, the first counselor we went to, uh, after the first session, said, do you remember, do you remember this, honey? It was just amazing. Uh, she says, well, you know, I think we should talk about how to amicably bring an end to this marriage. I don't see that you have anything to work with. <laughs> it's like, well, you're really an encouragement. Thanks a lot. It's like, good night. Uh, but it did seem hopeless. I, I think our friends all thought it was hopeless. It was really a difficult situation. But out of sheer obedience to Abba Father, we said we took a vow and, and it's, it's to be for life. And so we have got to make this work. And, and when two people, out of obedience to God, shut the divorce door and say, look, at, you know, we're stuck in this. We might as well find a way to be happy together. You find a way to get inside of each other's life, how to bridge that universe of difference and learn. It's not easy, but to learn how to, how to get into the other person's heart and mind and, and, and begin to uh, uh, touch souls. Um, it, it, you have to crucify yourself. You said sometimes you have to suffer for righteousness sake. You certainly have to forfeit your quote unquote right to happiness for a little bit, but I'm telling you, it's worth it. It is worth it. And it can happen. You give God a chance to grow you. Man, does it grow you having to work through a, a difficult marriage. You learn self-sacrificial love in, in ways that you never would dream of. And you give God a chance to begin to move this marriage in the direction of, of, of a, uh, something that would be honoring to him and would put on display his love. And I can't believe now how much I love Shelly and she loves me and the, the life we have now. I can't believe how, how, how it was capable of this. Uh, but, and I look back and I think, what would have happened if we would have ended this? It, it, just, it would have been tragic. And if we can do it, I'm telling you, you can do it, however hopeless it seems, however miserable you may, are, may be right now. Don't bail on it, but also don't just endure it. No, work on it. Commit to working on it. I, I encourage you to sit down and just say to one another, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we've got to find a way, whatever it takes, to move this in a God-honoring direction. I encourage you to forgive wrongs that have been done. Just forgive them as Christ forgives you. I encourage you to commit to spending time with one another. I encourage you to pray with one another and to minister together. That's one of the, the purposes for marriage is that you'll be a team, a dynamic duo for the kingdom. Start doing ministry together. I encourage you to surround yourself with friends. Uh, start, you know, looking for friends to invite in on your life because God never intended the, the marriage unit to be self-contained. This idea we've got about the nuclear family is just silly and unbiblical. We need a community around us to help fortify our marriages. I encourage you to, to be moving in that direction. And I encourage you, if you're in a bad marriage, uh, if you need to, and you probably do if it's really a bad one, to get a counselor. But get a good one, not like the one we got. Get a good one. <laughs> Somebody, somebody who's, who shares your kingdom values so they know where you're coming from. 
Uh, we got another counselor after that one, and, and uh, he was very helpful in helping us uh, learn about each other and move forward. So, so I encourage you to get a good one. We have a list of counselors here at the church that we've kind of vetted. And uh, if you want help finding a counselor, uh, I encourage you to call the church and, and get that list. Don't bail because you're not happy or you think you've fallen out of love. But also, don't just endure it. Oh, I'm just staying here out of God's, you know, because I just love Jesus. But you're not doing anything about it? That's, that's not doing anything. No, work on it, work on it. Now, what, what if you're married to somebody who's not a believer? Um, and this works great if you have two people who are both, you know, uh, kingdom people and are, have a kingdom motivation to make thing, the marriage work. But what happens if you're not married to a kingdom person? They're not a believer. Or maybe they are a believer, but like a lot of believers, it just doesn't do anything in their life. They're not a disciple. Same thing. Paul addresses this specifically in 1 Corinthians 7. And what he basically says there is, if you're married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever wants to stay married to you, well, then you need to stay married to the unbeliever. And even though that person doesn't have the kingdom motivation that you have, if they want to be married, then, then you still honor God by working to have as good of a marriage as possible and to put on display the love of the triune God. Even though, even though your, your spouse doesn't have your kingdom motivation, you're still honoring God by having as good of a marriage as possible. And Paul says, by staying in the relationship, you're bringing a kingdom influence to them. He says, you sanctify your spouse and the children, which just means, the word sanctify means to set apart. They're set apart for a kingdom influence by staying there. So I encourage you to stay in those marriages and work on them, even if your spouse is an unbeliever. If two people are committed and willing to work at the relationship, um, there's no reason why anyone in the kingdom should get a divorce. But it happens. We're in a fallen world and divorce happens. And we need to talk about it. And so um, I, with my sermon prep team, uh, as we talked about what we should address, we, we, we thought that an issue that would be very, very important for a lot of people is the issue of this. Can a divorced person get remarried? Is remarriage an option for a person who's been divorced? And that's a particularly important question for us here at Woodland Hills Church, because we, we've always had a, a, a strong stress on the truth that there is no hierarchy of sins. All right? There's not a, a graded scale. And we've always stressed that there are no deal-breaker sins. And we've always stressed that there's no place for judgment in the body of Christ. And for that reason, there's a lot of folks who feel stigmatized in other churches that come here because of this atmosphere that we've set here. And so we have a higher than average percentage of people who have been divorced. And I thank God for that. Wonderful. But that makes this a very important question. What makes it a challenging question that we need to wrestle with theologically? And here we're going to start to get into the meat of this message, so keep your thinking caps on. What makes it challenging is that Jesus several times gave this teaching. Matthew 19. He says, I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife, except for se sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So it looks there that Jesus is saying that if you're, uh, if, if you're divorced and then get remarried, you're committing adultery. Uh, and if anyone marries the divorced person, they're committing adultery. Which would seem to lead to the conclusion that divorced people can't ever get remarried. Um, now, before I address that particular issue, I want to zoom out a little bit and make sure that we're coming at this from a distinct kingdom perspective, all right, a distinct angle of the kingdom. Because the way this issue is usually dealt with, 
In fact, I have yet to read a book that didn't uh, follow this kind of method. The way it's usually dealt with is as though it was a matter of legal technicalities. It's like a, a legal issue. And so people want to know legally, uh, technically, what, what exactly are the grounds upon which you can get a divorce and feel justified? And what exactly are the ter- terms of, uh, or the grounds upon which a person can get remarried? And what exactly does Jesus mean when he says, except for the cause of sexual immorality? And, and, and everything hangs upon the legal, technical definition of those terms. That's how it's almost always dealt with. Um, and when, whenever people deal with, frame things in a, in a legal, technical way, we end up treating the Bible like it was some book of laws, technical laws, and God is sort of this cosmic judge, and our job is to learn and, and adhere to the technical laws. And whenever you have that kind of way of framing this issue, as though you know, this kind of court of law analogy uh, between us and God, it leads to bizarre situations, because people try to maneuver around the technicalities. So, for example... Uh, a lot of Christians think that Jesus is teaching here that, that when two people come together and become one flesh, when God joins them together, that even though they get a divorce, they're still, still married in God's eyes. You're always married in God's eyes. I was taught that. When I first became a Christian. You're always married in God's eyes, even though you're divorced. And that holds true, this line of thinking goes, until, until one of the partners has sex with somebody else. Then the marriage is done and you're free to move on. And so I have met a number of divorced Christians who are hoping and sometimes even praying that their ex will have sex with somebody, whether it's a new spouse or somebody else, so that now they'll be free to go get married and not commit adultery. What's wrong with this picture? Oh God, please help them commit adultery (laughs) so I can be free to get remarried. Something's off here. I even met a couple one time who, who loved each other and they felt God was calling them to, to be married and it certainly looked like they, they, this would be a good kingdom marriage. But they kept postponing the marriage. For three years they were postponing the marriage because the guy had been married before. And they were waiting till the ex got married first, thereby in their thinking committing adultery, which would then free him to get married and have sex without committing adultery. It's like, come on! You know, it presupposes a, a picture of God who is just obsessed with rules. You know, where your heart is at doesn't make any difference at all. It's the rules that matter. Even though your heart is, the, I want to have, get married and have a one flesh relationship with my spouse. No, no, there's a rule here. And the rule is whoever holds out the longest wins. <laughs> whoever has sex first, well, they're the adulterer, but no, you're not. It's like something's really wrong with this picture. That whole way of framing it presupposes that we're in a court of law and God is the judge and we're the defendants and the Bible is the rule book and we have to tiptoe around the landmines of legal technicalities trying to stay in his good graces. Folks, that is not the right way to frame any issue. It's certainly not the right way to frame this issue because the truth is that God is not first and foremost our judge. He's certainly not a judge of legal technicalities. He's our Abba Father. And we're not defendants. We are his beloved children. And our relationship with him isn't supposed to be a relationship that is based on adhering to a set of legal technicalities. In fact, Jesus in this teaching that we just looked at, if you put it in its original context, uh, I'm going to suggest to you that far from giving a legal technicality about divorce and remarriage, which is how it's always treated. But far from doing that, I'm going to show you that, in fact, he was blowing sky high the whole legal technicality framework and giving us a new framework to operate in. Okay, so put on your thinking caps. We're going to dive in, starting right now. 
context here is, it goes back to verse 3 of Matthew 19. It says that some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. And they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Okay, pause for a moment. The social context in which this is taking place is this. Divorce and remarriage was a hot political legal topic in first century Judaism. It, was part, it concerned the law of the land. It was a political issue, hot one. Uh, and there were two schools of thought on this. There was the school of Shammai, which thought that um, a man can only divorce his wife if she commits adultery. There's another school of thought called the school of Hillel, and they believed that a man could divorce his wife if she displeased him for any reason. And so these two schools of thought debated one another endlessly. Notice, no one was debating on what grounds can a woman divorce a man. Because <laughs> a woman in the first century couldn't divorce a man for any reason. Men had all the power, as we pointed out last week. Those sexist pigs. Uh, things have changed a lot. So th- th- there's this debate. Now the whole debate, I want us to see this here. The, the whole debate is, 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 ba- is rooted in the technical interpretation of one verse in the Old Testament. It's Deuteronomy 24.1. And there Moses says that if a man marries a woman and she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he has to write her a certificate of divorce. That's the verse. Now the trouble is that the word displeasing, chen in Hebrew, is uh, uh, ambiguous. It's not exactly clear what it means, pleasing. Um, and the word erva is even more ambiguous. It translated indecent. What exactly does that mean? And this is what was being debated. Does erva, indecency, does it apply just to something sexual? Or could it apply to other things as well? And if it applies to just something sexual, does it just mean adultery? Going all the way. What if your wife doesn't go all the way with somebody else, but she goes most of the way? Well, can you divorce her then? What if she just kind of kisses him? Can you divorce her then? What if she's just flirting with the guy? I mean, what exactly does indecent mean? And maybe it doesn't just apply to sex at all. Maybe, maybe it applies to other things. So the school of Hillel said, well, you know, the verse itself makes clear what erva means. It means not chen. It means you're not pleasing. Anything that is not pleasing to a man is indecent. So it's indecent for a wife not to have my breakfast ready when I get out of bed. It doesn't please me. And it's indecent for my wife not to flatter me in public because my ego needs boosting. So, so that's indecent of her not to do that. Uh, and, and it's indecent if she puts on a few extra pounds because that's not pleasing to me. I'm going to divorce her and get a wife who is a little more pleasing. And so on and so on and so on. But there's a lot of disputes, a lot of ambiguity, a lot of legal technicalities that need to be argued about. And this is the debate that was raging in first century Judaism. So the Pharisees are trying to suck Jesus into this debate, as they were always doing. Lure him into this debate. Because it's a political debate, it it divides the polis, the city-state. And and because it's a divisive political debate, like most political debates are, if they can get Jesus to weigh in on either side, well, he's going to lose half of his crowd going to divide all of his followers, which is what they want. Some things have never changed. This is still, in my opinion, one of the main strategies of the devil. I invite all that divisive stuff out there, and you divide the body of Christ. Jesus, as he always does, and as I think we should always do, he wisely finds a way of staying free of that quagmire, because the kingdom of God is not a new and improved version of the kingdom of this world. He finds a way of avoiding that quagmire. Look, look how he responds to their little, little entrapment. He goes, hmm, haven't you read, you Bible scholars, haven't you read, uh, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, 
and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus is here bringing them back to Genesis chapter 2, where we find God's ideal for marriage. And God's ideal, his plan is this. Two are going to leave the father and mother. Take note, in-laws. They do leave, and they cleave. They, 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 they come together, and, they, and, and when they become one flesh, which involves sexual intercourse, uh, they, God has joined them together. Their physical union... Uh, is representative of a spiritual union that's taking place. That's why in, in, throughout the Bible, sex is the sign of the marriage covenant. Uh, God has joined them together. And so Jesus is saying, if God's joined them together, well, then they should never be separated. And they reply, well, wait a minute. Why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. It was not God's ideal. Now, it's interesting here. Uh, the Pharisees construe uh, Deuteronomy 24.1 as though it was a command, as though you're commanded to send your wife away. Uh, and Jesus says, no, wait, 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 wait. This isn't like God's great and perfect plan for anyone's marriage. This is, this is a permission. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, uh, but that was because your hearts are hard. And what was commanded in Deuteronomy 24 is that if you're going to, if you're going to divorce your wife, well, then you have to give her a, a certificate of divorce before you send her away. And the reason God commanded that was, was so that the woman could now have proof that she's no longer bound to the man. This is a, a document, legal document, that would say, I'm no longer in that marriage covenant, which meant she was available. And it was very important for her to know, for people to know that she was available because being a single woman in the ancient uh, world, the time of the Old Testament was just not much of an option. There wasn't like a lot of uh, job opportunities to support yourself. You needed a man's support. And so she was, this was uh, a merciful way for God to say, when, when, if you're kicked out of one house, you can let other people know that, that you're available. Uh, it's also interesting here that if you read Deuteronomy 24, Deuteronomy 24, Deuteronomy 24 that the one person this lady was not allowed to go back to was the man who just divorced her. Um, which I think was in part intended to uh, get guys to avoid frivolous divorces where they get mad and kick you out and, and divorce you, but then they say, okay, come back in and kick you out and come back in. Uh, and so it was also there to help protect the women. But it's also significant that that suggests, I think, that this idea that you're forever married in God's eyes, even though you're in fact divorced, uh, is just misguided. When you're divorced, you really are divorced. That certificate of divorce was, was, was binding. Um, and it, it, you know, Jesus says what God has joined together should never be torn apart, but it can be torn apart. And that's what happens when we divorce someone. God honors, throughout the Bible, God honors the making of covenants, but he also acknowledges, sadly, the breaking of covenants, the ending of covenants. And so divorce really does bring an end to the marriage covenant. In any case, all that's going on, this talking back and forth. And it's only after this, after Jesus has brought them to Genesis 2, only after all that, that he gives the teaching that we looked at earlier. In verse 9, he says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. I want us to see what Jesus is doing here. These two groups are arguing about the legal technicalities of divorce and remarriage. 
what they're really doing is they're, they're, they're arguing about the grounds on which we can feel justified divorcing our wives. How can we feel righteous divorcing our wives? And what Jesus is saying here is this. Wrong question. Wrong question. The only reason Moses even permitted you to divorce your wives is because your hearts were hard. And so the fact that you're debating this issue reveals that you have hard hearts. Instead of trying to find the grounds on which you can feel righteous for divorcing your wives, you ought to be aspiring to God's ideal. And in God's ideal, given there in Genesis 2, what God has joined together should never be torn apart. The very fact that you're arguing about this shows that your heart is hard. You have the wrong starting point. What he's really saying is this. If we pay attention to God's ideal, there are no justifiable grounds to feel righteous for any divorce. In fact, I, I submit to you, I believe that that applies even if, tragically, there's been infidelity in a marriage. Um, maybe you, you might ask, well, what about that exception clause that Jesus gives, except for sexual immorality? It's interesting that that exception clause is only found in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, the other Gospels, when they give the, the Jesus' teaching here, they, they, they omit that. And the question is, why? And a lot of scholars believe, and I agree with this, that uh, it's because Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and he is the most thoroughly Jewish of all the Gospels. And in Jewish culture, there was a two, one or two year period uh, where a, a man and woman were betrothed to one another, pledged to one another, but they hadn't yet consummated the marriage. They weren't fully married. They were legally married. They had to get a legal divorce to get out of it, but um, uh, they weren't fully married. And during that engagement period, that betrothal period, uh, either the man or the woman could get out of the marriage uh, if the other partner uh, was being sexually inappropriate with somebody. They, they, could, they could call off the marriage. And so uh, a number of scholars argue that that's what Jesus is referring to with this clause, saying, uh, except, of course, for sexual immorality during that specific period of time. Um, it makes sense of why it's found in Matthew and not in other Gospels. In any case, I don't think a person should be, feel justified divorcing their spouse because of infidelity, uh, because there's always or almost always other things going on in the marriage that led to it. It's tragic, it's immoral, it should never happen, but in the kingdom we shouldn't see it as sort of uh, Jesus' escape clause. Oh good, now I can divorce him because he, he, he broke a rule. That's not the way in the kingdom we should think about things. And the reality is that if two people are willing to work at it and forgive one another and rebuild trust, and it takes time, but, but if two people are willing to work at it, sometimes the affair can expose this other thing that was going on and that needs addressing and, and to, to solidify the marriage and make it a God-honoring marriage. I, I, the whole justified thinking, I, I, I think, is, is, is not, not, not consistent with the kingdom. But whatever you think about that, whatever you think about that, the important point for us to note is this. Jesus is holding up God's ideal, the bullseye, in Genesis 2, in order to bring a stop to the self-righteous legal technicality game that the Pharisees are playing with this dispute about how to feel righteous divorcing your wives. And we have to understand Jesus' teaching about uh, divorce and remarriage in that light, given that purpose, given what he was trying to do. Jesus was not here trying to revoke Deuteronomy 24.1 where there was the permission for divorce because of the hardness of our hearts. Like, people's hearts aren't hard anymore. He wasn't tightening the noose of the Old Testament. What he was doing is bringing a stop to uh, 
the, the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. He wasn't suggesting that the unmarried woman couldn't uh, get remarried or that the divorced woman couldn't get remarried. In fact, in other places where Jesus gives this teaching, he assumes that the woman's going to get remarried. Like Deuteronomy 24 assumes the woman's going to get remarried. That's why she had the certificate of divorce. And so she could get remarried. Well, Jesus assumes this. So we read this in, in Matthew 5. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Look at that. Jesus here is depicting the man as causing her to become an adulteress. He's blaming the man because he's assuming up to that, of course, the woman has got to get remarried. As I said, in first century Judaism, in Palestine, there weren't a lot of job opportunities to support yourself. Uh, unless you were independently wealthy, which hardly anyone certainly any Jewish woman in Palestine in the first century was, uh, then you had to be a beggar on the street or a prostitute. Not good options. And so it was assumed that, of course, you're going to get remarried and be supported by a man. Um, and, and so he, he, he doesn't apply this in ways that change the permission of Deuteronomy 24. In fact, Jesus doesn't draw any social implications from this teaching that he's giving. He doesn't say remarriage involves adultery and therefore no one can get remarried. Uh, his purpose is simply to, it's not to revoke Deuteronomy 24, the permission that was given. His purpose is simply to hold up God's ideal in order to undermine the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. So he's saying this whole legal te technicality debate about divorce and remarriage is stupid. Because when two people become one flesh and God joins them together, uh, that should be for a whole lifetime. And so it should never be torn apart. What Jesus is saying in essence is this. Okay, you guys... If you want to play this legal, technicality, self-righteous game, well, then technically, you ought to be comparing yourselves to the ideal, the bullseye of Genesis 2. And if you do that, well, then technically, uh, all, any sex after one partner involves adultery because it's a break from God's ideal. The bullseye is to have one sexual partner for your entire life. Anything outside of that technically is adultery. And that applies regardless of how whether the person you first had sex with was your spouse or not. In fact, it applies, that ideal applies um, to the most frivolous form of sex, even having sex with a prostitute. Paul addresses this in, 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 in 1 Corinthians. Uh, follow this. At Corinth, it was a real promiscuous city, and uh, prostitution was just prevalent. It was just normal. It was everywhere. It was known for its prostitution. And so there were some guys who, who became Christians, uh, but they kept going to the brothel houses. They just thought that's what guys do, you know? Uh, and so Paul has to address this issue of Christians going to prostitutes. And so he says this in 1 Corinthians 6. He goes, you guys, don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, and now he quotes Genesis 2, the two will become one flesh. Even having sex with a prostitute, the most frivolous kind of sex you could have, it creates that one flesh relationship, which according to God's ideal should never be separated. But notice this. Paul, like Jesus, doesn't draw any social implications from that. He doesn't say, well, since you've created that one flesh relationship, you've got to go back and find the last prostitute you had sex with and marry her. Thankfully, I think that would be a bad idea. 
You see, because his purpose isn't to uh, his purpose isn't to apply it socially. His purpose is to hold up God's ideal to tell these guys, "Hey, bozos, you shouldn't be going out to the brothel houses. This isn't what Jesus followers do. You shouldn't be having frivolous sex. No, this is you're violating God's ideal." He doesn't draw any of the social implications from it. He's just holding up this ideal to show them that they can't feel righteous going to prostitutes. So what that means, folks, is is that technically speaking, holding up to God's ideal. Any of us who have had sex with more than one partner technically are adulterers and adulteresses. This room is very, very quiet. <laughs> we're, we're, uh, we're, we're creating one flesh relationships with someone. God's ideal was to have one. And then when we go on, we're technically adulterers and adulteresses. Uh, now, if you're here and you're feeling a little smug right now because it doesn't apply to you because you've never had sex with anyone other than your spouse or you if you're single you've never had sex uh before you feel too smug let me show you something else jesus taught (laughs) he says in matthew 5 you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery that's true but i tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart and women, unless you feel right, self-righteous, it applies to you too. <laughs> God's ideal, the bullseye, and remember, anything outside the bullseye is sin. Hamartia in Greek is a word for sin, and it just means missing the mark. You miss the mark. Anything outside of God's ideal, the bullseye, is sin. And in God's ideal, it wasn't just that we would have a one flesh relationship with one person our entire life, but in God's ideal, we would only think about having sex with one person all of our life. And anything outside of that is technically adultery. So any of, he, uh, of, uh, of us here who have either had sex with someone other than the spouse that we have, or have thought about having sex with someone other than the spouse that we currently have, we're adulterers and adulteresses, which I think means it's pretty safe to conclude that almost everybody in this auditorium and listening on podcasts is an adulterer or an adulteress. Think about it. And see, if you want to apply this socially... Draw social implications would mean that you should, we should all go back to the last person we lusted after and try to marry them, <laughs> which I hope we could agree would be a bad idea. Uh, and unless uh, it was your spouse. Uh, we already married, so yeah, it would be a bad idea in any case. That would not be God's will. The purpose for holding up this ideal is simply to undermine the self-righteousness of, of these folks. So when Jesus says, whoever remarries commits adultery, He's not applying it socially, drawing new, social, new and more strict social implications. He's not revoking the permission given in Deuteronomy 24. He's not saying that a divorced person can never get remarried. He's simply holding up God's ideal to, to expose the hypocrisy of this whole legal technicality game that they're playing, to, to show the wrongness, the hard-heartedness behind this whole debate that they're trying to lure him into. And in doing that, Jesus is showing them and I think showing all of us that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, that we've all missed the mark, that we all are sinners in need of grace, that we all have fallen in minds, uh, that we all stand or fall by God's grace. So brothers and sisters, in the family of God, here's the thing. If God, in fact, is this legal technicality uh, person, God up there, um, and, and, and if salvation is a matter of us adhering to the bullseye, us you know, uh, uh, maneuvering around these technicalities, if that's what salvation's about, then I submit to you that we are all toast. 
Would you agree with me? We're, we're, we're gone. It's, it's hopeless. We're lost. We're, we're doomed. We're, we're fried. We're, we're, we're destined for hell. Uh, if, if that's the way this thing works, then there's, there, and there's no way we can get back to a point where we can make it right. No, we're, we're goners if, if God is into playing the technicality game. Because the truth is we've all fallen a million miles from the ideal of God's standard, not just on the sexual issue, but on a, a whole assortment of issues. And, and, uh, uh, and that's why we ought to be thanking God that he's not a God who's a legal technicality lawyer up there accusing us. He's our Abba Father, our dear Father. Who loves us by his grace. Praise God. And we're not, we're not defendants in the court of law. We are his beloved children. And he's pouring his life and his DNA into us. Praise God. And, and, and the kingdom of God isn't this court of law where he's the judge and we're the defendants. The kingdom of God is the family of God. Uh, the, the, all over whom God reigns. Praise God. And our relationships with God and with one another uh, aren't to be uh, based on technicalities and, and, and legalities and all that sort of thing. Our relationship with God and therefore with one another is to be one that expresses the freedom of God's love, the, the pureness of God's grace. It's about us receiving God's love and extending God's love to others. Loving as Christ has loved us. And, and receiving his grace and putting on display his grace towards one another. And, and receiving his joy and putting on display his joy. It's about dancing in the kingdom. And Jesus came not to tighten the noose of the Old Testament. Like, we're all done with that now. We're going to make it a little tighter here. No, he didn't come to give us new legal technicalities about divorce and remarriage or any other issue. He came to inaugurate a kingdom that's about fullness of life. He came to inaugurate a kingdom where people are being transformed uh, from the inside out. That, that, that the power of God's love that we sang about earlier. Uh, it came to bring a kingdom where people are receiving that love and being transformed by that love. It's all rooted in God's grace. Not a grace that's a license to sin. That's not, that's not even biblical grace. It's a grace that empowers us to move away from sin. It's a transformation from the inside out. All the external legal technicalities try to change us from the outside in. Here's the rule. Doesn't matter what's in your heart. Just obey the rule. You think that maybe if you obey enough rules, well, then, then, then you'll be loved by God and a child of God. No, no, you know, that whole legal technicality game, you find some of that in the Old Testament, but the purpose, why it's, the reason why it's back there was to show us that we can never get right with God that way. That's why Paul says that the law was given to drive us to Christ. It was there to, by showing us the impossibility of relating to God that way, now we're open to a Savior. Man, do we need a Savior. Now, man, do we need grace. Because we know that if it's a legal technicality game, we are all done. It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God. And see, it's that grace that meets us where we're at, wherever we're at. It meets us where we're at, because God's not afraid of going as low as he needs to go to reach down and get us. And then that grace grabs us and begins to empower us to now begin to move forward in our life in ways being transformed from the inside out, in ways that we can now live that, to bring honor to God and to carry out his will on earth as it is in heaven and, and to expand the family of God. And it's that grace and only that grace that allows any of us to get married in the first place, despite the fact that technically we are adulterers and adulteresses. See what I'm saying? If we've thought about it or done it, we're adulterers. And yet God's grace says you can marry. And it's that same grace that says to the divorced person, though you're an adulterer and adulteress, you can get remarried. He reaches us where we're at and moves us forward. What brings life? It's that grace. It's that grace that means that because it's all by grace, while God calls some of us to be single and some to be married, sometimes folks get divorced, God calls some of them to be remarried, while, while because it's all by God's grace that we can do any of that, 
None of us can feel self-righteous about any of it. And it's all by God's grace. There's no, one, no position in the kingdom for someone to say, well, you know, I'm single, I didn't get married. No, no, if you've, if you've thought about it, you need God's grace too. And if it's not on that issue, you need God's grace for something else. There's just no room to look down on anyone. Or for someone who's been married and never divorced, to look down on the divorced person and say, oh, well, we stayed married. Or for someone who's divorced and they stay divorced and don't get remarried, to look at the person who did get remarried and think, oh, well, they got remarried. No. You know what? That, that whole way of thinking is wrong. That whole that judgment, that legal technicality thing is just off. In the kingdom, we don't look at things that way. No, we, we're living and dancing by God's grace. We can't feel self-righteous about anything. But we also shouldn't feel condemned, whether we're single, whether we're married, divorced, remarried. Because it is God's grace, we shouldn't feel condemned. Whether we're single, married, divorced, remarried, wherever we are, what matters is that we're children of Abba Father. And right here and right now, he meets us where we're at and moves us forward. And he empowers us by the power of his beautiful love. He empowers us to live in ways. This is our calling. To honor him. Whether we're single, married, divorced, remarried, to honor him. To carry out his will on earth as it is in heaven. And to expand the family by putting on display the beauty of his love and inviting other people into it. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. The legal technicality game is over. It's over. That's a kingdom has a radically unique way of looking at everything through the lens of Jesus Christ. I'm going to close in prayer, and as I do, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward, and if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever that you would like to have prayed for, whether it's about a marriage issue, divorce issue, or a health issue, or a financial issue, doesn't matter, I encourage you to come forward and pray with these folks. Everything you share will be held in confidence. Uh, and so, Father, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, we love you, and we thank you for your grace, uh, God, that, that meets us where we're at and transforms us to where you want us to be. We confess that we have fallen short of your ideal. We've missed the bullseye millions of times, and yet that doesn't change your fatherly love for us. I pray, God, that we could all get that deeply. Uh, Lord, I pray that we'd all stay free of the legal technicality game, which just invites the accuser into our lives. Keep us free from that, Lord God. Keep us living in your grace, being transformed by your grace. And Father, as we go out of here, I pray, God, that you would be moving all of our marriages more and more in the direction where we'd be putting on display your beautiful love and saving our marriages. Help us, God, to be obedient children who work on our marriages. But, Lord God, for those who are divorced, I pray, Lord God, that they have a freedom to be hearing your voice, whether you're calling them to be remarried or not, to be empowered and transformed by your beautiful love as we leave this place to carry out your will, bring honor to your name, and expand your kingdom in Jesus' name. And all of God's kids said, God bless you guys. Go out and expand the kingdom.